Before we get started, we want to uh, celebrate um, life groups are in, all life groups are in some form of motion as I speak. So if you signed up for a life group, you should either already be meeting or have heard from your leader uh, or host about an initial meeting, or you will within the next few days or a week or so. We are grateful that, this is me looking at all the life group leaders who haven't called anybody yet. Okay. Um, we are grateful that we've been able to look at uh, the three groups that didn't have leaders, and we've worked something out for that, so we're moving forward on all those things. Early in January, we plan to uh, bring all the leaders forward to pray over them and to pray over the life group's uh, leadership team and begin to communicate to the life group leaders what our plans are uh, for the coming year. The second thing I want to say is today in the church year, the church calendar is known as Christ the King Sunday or Return of Christ Sunday. That is, uh, it is seen as kind of the end of the church year uh, as we look forward to the return of Christ and we restart the church year next week with the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a time when we look forward to the second coming, uh, when all things will be put right, when the kingdom of God will come in fullness, or as Paul says in Ephesians, when unity, when God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, under or in Christ. The other part of it is that um, Advent is a time when we remember Christ's first coming. For the past several years, we've offered daily Advent prompts that can come to you by text on your phone uh, during the season. So if you're interested in receiving those prompts, it just prompt you to pray, prompt you to read, prompt you to... Uh, worship in some way each uh, for the weekdays during the season of Advent. You can, uh, they'll start a week from tomorrow. You can text the word at advent-ecc to that number 81010 and that will get you signed up. If you'd rather have it come to your email, contact the church office at ecc at ecclife.net and we will get you signed up for that. If you have any trouble with that, find one of us afterwards and we'll be glad to help you with that. So to begin this morning, I want to introduce you to a few fellow Christians from the 3rd century. Um, on May 7th, the year was 203 A.D., some games took place in the arena in the city of Carthage in, along the North African coast. Carthage was a leading city in the um, African part of the Roman Empire at that time. And these games were scheduled to... Uh, celebrate the birthday of the emperor's son. The participants in these games were gladiators, wild animals, and criminals. And the point of the game was to torture and kill the criminals in the cruelest ways imaginable. The criminals on that day, it should be noted, were Christians. Their crime was like that of, of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was their refusal to bow to any other god. Thousands of people gathered in this arena to watch, to cheer, to eat and drink as these Christians were tortured and killed. This event has been preserved for us through an eyewitness account or two. Uh, it's a document, ancient document, focused on the lives in particular of the two women that were there, Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua was only 22 years old. She was married and had an infant son at this time. There were three other Christian men who were arrested with them. Two of them were free men. The other was a slave. To these five, one additional man came forward voluntarily and proclaimed himself a Christian as well. The night before the games, the prisoners were served their last meal, while apparently crowds of people looked on and watched them. At one point in the meal, 
the prisoners turned and addressed the crowd, the onlookers. They expressed their joy even amid their suffering. They warned the onlookers of God's judgment, and then they invited them to come and watch them be martyred on the next day. It was reported that in and through this address, many of the onlookers came to faith. What happened that day, May 7th, 203 AD, was and is a powerful illustration of something the Apostle Paul has to say to us today in our passage in uh, the book of Ephesians. It is our last passage in this series on Ephesians. Uh, We're going to read the first part of it again, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is a very well-known passage of the New Testament. It's a beautiful piece of exhortation laced with metaphorical armor for the spiritual battles that we we fight but the apostle paul didn't come up with these pieces of armor on his own he borrowed them from the prophet isaiah from 587 to 538 bc the people of god were sent into exile in babylon here's what we like to try to remind you a few times a year Uh, understanding this period of the exile understanding that it took place and the impact it had on the people of god is essential for understanding the rest of the bible it just is, it, because it's so, it's so soaked into their culture and their understanding of things. The people of God were in exile in Babylon, and several of Isaiah's prophecies occur right before that time, during that time, or toward the end of that time. They're speaking to that time. His words are either warning them that exile is coming if they don't shape up, or giving them hope that one day exile will be over and they'll be sent back home. So take, for example, Isaiah 59. People feel at this time they have been abandoned by God, that God is not hearing them, that God is not answering their cries for help. And finally, the people cry out to God and confess their sin. And then in verses 16 and 17 of Isaiah 59, uh, Isaiah tells us that God sees his people's distress and he decides to act. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. God put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, and God took action. God strapped on his armor and came to the rescue of his people as their warrior God. God put on this armor in the same way that Paul tells us to put on the armor of Ephesians 6. We find similar language over in Isaiah chapter 11, where we are told of a shoot that will rise up from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being the father of King David. This is a promise that someone like David will rise up and judge the earth, the Messiah, who will come hundreds of years later. What will the Messiah wear? Isaiah 11.5. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. 
Or consider the language of Isaiah 49, where the servant of the Lord, who is later identified with um, the Messiah, speaks and uses the language of weaponry and armor once again. Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 2. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So staying with the theme, so far, even though the terms do not always exactly match, we have been introduced to a belt or sash, a breastplate, a helmet, and now a sword and a shield. And these, uh, these uh, or something very near these things, are mentioned in today's passage in Ephesians. After all, Paul tells us to put on the armor of God. God's armor, the armor that God wears. Put on the armor of God, not your own armor. This correlation between these images in Isaiah and Ephesians is no accident. These pieces of armor in Ephesians 6 are hyperlinks, hyperlinks back to the images of God and his suffering servant Messiah in the prophecies of Isaiah. We, like God, we, like the Messiah, are to put these things on. To put on the full armor of God, then, is to put on God. It is to put on Christ. To put on the full armor of God is to put on Christ. This is not about carefully identifying each piece of armor and what they mean and how we use them. It is about putting on the Messiah, Christ. It is about putting on the very character of God in Christ and about doing so, and this is important, together as the church, not merely as individuals. As we, the the body of Christ, take on the character of Christ, we will be armed for the fight, for the battle. We will be protected for the battle. What does it mean to put on Christ? It means that we are both transformed and ever-transforming. It means that we are together on the path to having Christ more fully formed in us, fleshed out in our character and our way of life. It means that we are learning to live as Jesus would live if he were us. And it means that we are prepared for the battle. But let us be careful how we identify the enemy in that battle. Again with verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is not against other human beings. It is against rulers. It is against authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These powers of supernatural opposition have popped up a few times in Paul's letter to the Ephesians already. In chapter 1, verse 21, we are reminded that Christ has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In Ephesians 2, 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is mentioned as the one who kept people enslaved to disobedience and sin. In Ephesians 3.10, we are told that through the church, God's intent was to make his wisdom known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And now again, in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul lists them out all out for us, and he reminds us that they are the true focal point of our battle. Not the human beings in and through whom these powers and principalities sometimes get their work done. 
And for our friends in Carthage in the year 203, neither are the enemies, their glad, the gladiators, or the spectators, or even the emperor. In Paul's writings, these powers are at work in the world in corporate ways. Through social, political, cultural, and even religious systems. Sometimes these words can do double duty. They can refer to spiritual beings and powers, or they can refer to, to earthly beings and powers. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, within a few verses of each other, one of these words, ruler, is used both ways. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then in verse 42 of John 12, nevertheless, many, even the rulers, believed in him. First instance, the ruler is a spiritual power, and the second one, rulers are earthly leaders. In Ephesians, however, Paul is speaking of spiritual forces, not earthly ones. They are systemic, they are widespread, they are powerful, and they are our true enemies, not other human beings. They have incredible power to disrupt what God is doing in the church. <clears throat> but the good news is that in Christ, we are actually more powerful than they are. How are we to access this power? Paul has already said it once, and now he's about to repeat himself and then dive into more detail once more. Just reading a portion of it again. Therefore put on, verse 13, the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul adapts the armor from the armor of God, the armor of the Messiah, uh, what they wear in the Old Testament. And Paul tells us to put on Christ to put on the character of Christ. But how do we suit up? How do we put on the full armor of God? We begin by coming to faith in Christ. That's where it starts. And then we continue. We continue to put on this armor by growing in that faith, by pursuing our own transformation into more Christ-like people. As I said, people who live as Jesus would live if he were you. The more we grow in Christ, the better prepared we are for the battle and the attack of these rulers, authorities, and powers. It is, as it says in verse 10, to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In his mighty power. This means that the Ephesians and we must more fully live into the identity that Christ has given us, that, that Paul has talked about earlier in the book of Ephesians. Scholar Clinton E. Arnold puts it this way, he says, this involves becoming profoundly cognizant of the changes that have occurred in their lives now that they have come to a knowledge of the truth, received righteousness, experienced salvation, been endowed with the gift of the Spirit, and are now able to exercise increasing faith in God. Now, in the midst of all of this, you perhaps notice this uh, in the talk of armor, there is a word that pops up four times. That word is stand. And when a word pops up four times, when a word gets repeated like that, it means we need to pay attention. This reminds me of uh, little Maria Smith, who was six when I came here. 
And every week after the service was over, Maria would greet me at the door and hand me a piece of paper on which she had written the words I said and how many times I said them. <clears throat> Jesus, 15, the little hash marks. God, 12, whatever. Maria would have handed me a piece of paper that said stand four times. Only I'm going to say it more than Paul said it. It's a repeated word, and it means there is something we need to pay attention to. If you read it, if you, if you would listen to it, it even sounded awkward to have it said so many times. Now first, keep in mind that Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to a community of faith, people he is called to be in unity with one another. He's been harping on this all along, this unity thing, and he does so often in his letters because unity is vital to the church of Jesus Christ. We are to grow in Christ-likeness and faith together. And we together are to stand as one. We stand as one. And we stand against the powers and against the rulers and against the authorities that seek to undo us, to disrupt our unity, our oneness. What are these principalities and powers today? They are... Any collective force, any demonic reality, that any system that seeks to undo the purposes of God and to disrupt the unity of the Spirit that God has given to the church of Jesus Christ and to disrupt the unity toward which God is taking all things. Anything like that. One scholar, and I don't remember exactly who it was because it was years ago that I read it, made the statement that disunity was the first heresy. Disunity was the first heresy. Because all that God is doing depends so much on the unity of the body of Christ. There's plenty of debate over whether or not this imagery is offensive, these weapons are offensive or defensive. That is, are we, are we attacking the forces of evil and taking ground, or are we defending against their attack? I think it's both. I think it's both. For sometimes we battle and we move forward, and sometimes we simply have to hold the ground that we've gained. We must stand against the powers who are trying to take back that, that ground. Paul fit, closes off with one more piece of armor, in a sense, prayer, verses 18 to 20. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul does not specifically list out prayer as a piece of the armor, but it is. And I love that Paul first tells us to pray all kinds of prayer and all kinds of quests on all occasions. That is, Paul says, as he says elsewhere, we are to pray without ceasing. There's no prayer too simple or too small or too large. At all times and on all occasions, we are to pray all kinds of prayers. I heard an interview last year with uh, Michael Card, singer and songwriter Michael Card. And they were talking to him about his own uh, life of prayer and spiritual disciplines. And he said that a good chunk of his life of prayer right now was simply saying over and over throughout the day, Lord, have mercy. There's something to that. Simply being aware that God is with you and simply crying out to God 
praying without ceasing. There is also a way to live our lives, I talked about this last fall, in which we are moment by moment seeking to be present to the God who is present to us, seeking to be sensitive to the the, the leading, the voice, the, the direction of the Holy Spirit, and then to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit reminds you, brings someone to mind, you stop and pray for them. Or you do something the Spirit is asking you to do. This too is a way of praying without ceasing, simply seeking to stay in tune with the Spirit of God. Back to our friends. The day after Perpetua, her slave Felicity, and the four men had been served their last meal, they were all sent to the floor of the arena as wild animals were released to attack them. The names of the men, by the way, we should name them too, are Saturninus, Secundus, Revocatus, and Satyrus. That's a tongue twister. But the animals were not moving along as fast as the crowd wanted. It was taking too long. And so the crowd demanded that all of the Christians be put in the center of the arena so that everybody could see them better when the gladiator was sent in to finish them off with the sword. But as this group of followers of Jesus lay bloodied and, and wounded on the ground and facing imminent death at the hands of the gladiator, they did something strange and beautiful and totally unexpected. They stood They came together as a group. They huddled together as one. And then they kissed each other with the kiss of peace. They took a stand. They did not do this as a way to protest. They did not do it because they were trying to make a statement. They did it because this is what they always did. When they came together to worship, they stood. All the ancient art we have of Christians in worship, they're standing. They stood they came together as one and they greeted one, with one another with a holy kiss. A kiss of peace. This would have been strange to those onlookers, the crowds that day. For these six Christians were from different social groupings, women and men, slave and free, poor and advantaged. Such people simply did not mix in that day and age and they certainly would never have kissed one another. Historical scholar Alan Kreider says of them that in an extremely difficult situation, quote, exhausted and in pain though they were, the prisoner did reflexively, virtually on autopilot, what they had been habituated to do in their services of worship. They exchanged the kiss of peace, embodying a love that transcended social barriers. They stood as one because they always stood as one. They stood as one because they always stood as one. This is why it's important to come together and worship, friends. This is why it's important to be a part of a community. This is what we hope will happen in life groups. We come together. We love and care for and serve one another. We worship together. We are formed in the faith together so that when the difficult times come, and they will, we will be better formed and we will have one another so that we can stand as one. We can pray for and support one another as one. 
We can advance against the principalities and powers and take back the ground the enemy has stolen as one. As we were told in the children's message, there was no coordination between what the children's message was and what I was preaching. I simply heard I should take a look at it, and I did. But as we heard, we do not take our stand alone because God is with us to strengthen us, to sustain us, to empower us, to support us. And we do not take our stand alone because we have one another. We have one another. We stand like the Pando Aspen Grove that I introduced to you a few weeks ago. The largest known living organism in the cosmos. 47,000, more than 47,000 stems spring up from one root ball weighing in it more than 6,000 tons and covering more than 100 acres. But it's one. Its roots support different stems across that 100 acres when they are in need. We are interconnected. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We keep the unity of the Spirit. And we have one another to encourage, to strengthen, and to sustain us as well. To stand is to be intentional and strong. It is to be bold and courageous. It is to pray without ceasing. It is to know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, according to 1 John 4.4. And it is to do all of these things together as one, as a community, prepared to fight, not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the authorities, against the rulers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And friends, I am not trying to be sensational here, but the principalities and the powers are already marshalling their forces for another go. To disunify, to discourage, to divide, to distract, and if it were possible, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Another onslaught is coming, and we need to stand as one in prayer and say, not here. Not here. We will be one. 